Okay, welcome to the Digital Identity Podcast. I'm your co-host, Terry Lin, with Carlos and Ben. How's it going, guys? Today, we're going to talk about identity systems and blockchain. So, guys, what's going on? How are you doing, Terry? All good, all good. Before we start, we're going to talk about two problems that blockchain solve. I think one issue is the two generals problem, uh, which kind of we'll have Ben talk about a little bit, and then the double spend problem, uh, which I have Carlos talk about. So, on a high level, uh, blockchains solve a big trust issue that we have in our world. So, if you look at how we have accounting firms that audit the books of companies because you can't trust companies with their own books. Uh, you have certain things like notarization, translators, because you can't trust someone that presented a document. It's actually a real one, right? So there's all these cost systems built into our day-to-day lives that uh, what kind of makes blockchain exciting is that it solves all these issues. So the first one is the two generals problem. Uh, ben, do you want to go over this real quick? I'll just touch on it uh, on, on a pretty high level here. But basically, um, so you got two generals that are trying to attack a city and they need to coordinate and figure out you know, what time uh, they're going to be attacking at, right? So they need to send a messenger. Basically, it's, it comes down to how, how, do you, how do you know for sure that the message got through, right? How, how do you confirm that? that? That's pretty much it. <laughs> and the thing that happens is that if General 1 sends an order and General 2 does not get it, and General 1 attacks himself, he's not going to succeed, right? And then if they attack at both different times, neither of them are going to succeed. And so the, the interesting issue is that when it comes to like transactions online, you know, if I'm going to send money to my supplier, how do I trust that he actually got that and whether he'll send me back a quote and if I can actually transact on that? Because I think we talked about this internally with some of the R&D stuff with like a messaging app, right? This isn't just for blockchain. This is sort of computing in general, right? I mean, if you're using... Uh, like a network to send a message or something, right? Or, you know, even like down, right down to the packets, right? So, you know, you send a packet, how you know that the packet got through? So it's got to be some kind of confirmation there. Uh, so there's a few few different parts of uh, of computing and networking that actually use this this sort of analogy. One quick comment that is that uh, two generals problem is part of a bigger problem that is the Byzantine generals problem situation where the general is, there's a possibility it is malicious trying to give the wrong message on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty interesting how blockchain and consensus protocols are able to deal with situations where a network expecting uh, the possibility of having bad actors in it. That's pretty cool. That's what makes uh, blockchain allow to, to build decentralized systems on top of it. And it's a very real issue too, because if you think about the real world, there's always malicious actors wanting to do certain things. If I remember right, there's one commander and say three generals. How do you know if one is bad that the other three can still come to consensus and do the right thing as a whole, right? And so I think that's something interesting that blockchain solved because, um, and, and through a computational way, right? Not just like, are you a traitor? No, I'm not. Like, how do you prove he's not a traitor? Yeah, trustless, um, right? Yeah, it's a trustless yeah. system. Right, and it's a distributed way to do it, which just makes it really interesting. Um, that is done with computer code and not just like a trial, you know, like a witch trial or something like that. Are you a traitor um, or not? Because <laughs> malicious actors usually hide behind, like what do they say, like a wolf in sheep's clothes, right? And yeah. um, sometimes it's harder to tell. And, but if you have a consensus mechanism that does this for you, it solves a lot of inefficiencies that comes with kind of transactions. And so moving on from that, uh, another thing that blockchain solve, is, especially when it comes to currencies, which is something called the double spend problem. Uh, so Carlos, why don't you go over this one? Yeah, simply put, uh, double spend problem is since we're dealing with digital assets here, we're dealing with data. And uh, one of the characteristics of, of digital things that they can be uh, replicated, they can be duplicated. And so the big challenge here when, when, when implementing cryptocurrency, for example, is how do we guarantee that the funds that belong to you and the funds that belong to me 
uh, cannot be replicated. If that were possible, uh, the whole cryptocurrency uh, idea wouldn't work. That's one of the things that uh, is solved by the the existence of consensus protocols. The idea is that the the network has a set of nodes that replicate the the transaction data. the The question here is how to guarantee that every node uh, agrees on on the state of truth, the state of of those funds, those transactions, with the proper consensus protocols fault tolerant you can guarantee that no one can spend their coins twice which is the double spending problem it is i sent to you terry uh some some coins and some tokens and then i might try to gain the system to revert that transaction back somehow and then i send the, those funds to ben the same 20 tokens that would be possible if there wasn't consensus protocol going on guaranteeing that each node has knows what's going on yeah and that's what was so kind of interesting about bitcoin when it came out it's like the blue people of mind that it solved both of these problems as like a first experiment ever in this whole space yeah it's pretty hard to to actually do perform a double spending attack the original i mean the, the bitcoin protocol makes it virtually impossible unless you control more than half the the network so you can um, there's no need for consensus then because you are the owner of, of the network, basically. So uh, for that consensus protocol specifically, uh, the 51% of ownership of the network makes it possible to, to attack it in any way, even uh, with double spending problem. And 51% means you can like rewrite old blocks too, right? Because you could just change it and distribute yeah. it to the new nodes. Exactly. That's how you would perform something like a double spending attack on, on, the, on the network. Yeah, so let's diverge a little bit. There's something we didn't mention here before we started was non-fungible tokens. Uh, these are kind of like unique tokens that even if you did copy them, they would still prove that the owner had an ownership of a certain token, right? Is that correct? Like it's a unique in a unique way. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The the the, the characteristic of the, what makes them non fungible is that they are different from each other. Like uh, when you deal with money, uh, it's it's fungible. Uh, I can change my twenty dollars bill for another $20 bill and it's the same thing it, it just, the value is the same it doesn't matter the the physical object uh, that represents the the cash in this in this case so that's what makes it uh, possible to deal with it, it use it as a form of currency but with non-fungibility means that uh, it, it's more intended to represent like objects in real life. So one, for example, a diploma, a certificate of some sort, university degree is, is mine. It's, uh, it's, it's no one else. It doesn't work. I cannot exchange it for another one and, and have it to be the same. So that's one thing that uh, many people have been working on. There's, there's a standard for that on Ethereum to make fungible, non-fungible tokens on top of the network. There's a CryptoKitties. I, I, I don't really know much about it. I've never gotten into it. So I don't know if Ben can give us a... <laughs> I'm, I'm no expert on CryptoKitties. Do you own CryptoKitties? No, no. <laughs> I've tried playing it once. You just basically you try to breed cats and then each cat is a ERC-725. No, it's a 721. 721, okay, gotcha. Yeah. But basically you would get a cat and every cat would look different because they were like genetic combinations. And then um, some of them you had... Right? Yeah, you're basically breeding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then if you get one that's really valuable, that token, you can sell it for a lot. Um, what's interesting because when it comes to like I guess like copyright stuff, like you look at like how you just take MP3s and copy it and you go to the YouTube algorithm where like they have like these copyright ID stuff. Like eventually if the owner of a key could sign or put assign a token to his artwork, does this kind of stop that system? Because then you know who owns it, right? Based on who has a token on their address. Well, CryptoKitties is weird though because you, you don't own the artwork either, right? Like 
um like you'll you'll own that uh like token or whatever but um the actual artwork is owned by the like the media company that runs it oh i didn't know that okay that's interesting i you you own the token I see yeah, you, you just own the token that's related to it, but you don't actually own like the picture. The picture right. is like, like I could take that graphic, take it to like Teespring and make t-shirts of it, but you can do anything about it, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, let's go back to identity systems. Can we get into this? Uh, I think we had a quote last week uh, on the internet. Everyone's a dog, right? So who are you interacting with and can they actually be trusted? And who you are, shopping habits, location data, medical information. Now, this is all contracts with who you are. And when someone else owns it, uh, you're delegating this security and risk handling, right? So if they get hacked or uh, you lose your data, you know, you can be a victim of identity theft or even worse, ransomware and things like that. So uh, let's go into kind of how blockchain can solve some of these issues. Then. So uh, the first one we have, these are kind of in order of impact, I would say. And the first one is immutable. So what does this mean, Carlos? Let's have you take this one. Yeah, the fact that uh, blockchain is uh, a distributed ledger it is uh, spread across a desirable big network of, of nodes. Protecting that data with, with a consensus protocol makes it, we might say, virtually impossible to, to make changes to it. At least the way blockchain, the original blockchain is designed is that there's a transaction uh, chain to another transaction describing the history of transactions over the network. And it's an, what we would say an append-only list. So the, it, it is made for the, the list goes, grows in time, you add to it, but you can never delete any data. So uh, as far as transactions go, the way blockchain, the, the principle of blockchain is that it is immutable. It is like you can set things in stone. You can, you can register uh, ownership of assets in real life. You can, uh, whatever you put there, you can trust if uh, as long as the network behaves there's not a loss of consensus at any point uh you you can trust that that data will will stay there no one can change it yeah i think a lot of industries that could take advantage is like settlement businesses where say you're doing cash settlements stock trades uh derivative products that have a lot of parties involved but you need to move stuff around everyone needs to make sure that they have the right information or on the right accounts i think some products i've known talked to some bankers or traders said like certain credit derivatives can take like a week to settle uh, even like precious metals is not that easy because precious metals right now is kind of like you buy silver on eBay, but you're paying with like Venmo and kind of just getting all that system sorted out. Uh, it's a very kind of old archaic system that never really caught on uh, with the internet too. So uh, number two, we have the distributed ledger. Kind of going over that, but you want to go over this a little bit, Ben? Yeah, actually, I'm just one more point about the immutability there. Um, that immutability... Um, that's only true if, if a network is truly decentralized, right? right? So you can have a, mm, yeah, a blockchain yeah. that's not, um, you know, that's like a private blockchain or something, right? And then uh, they could go in and, and change stuff, right? If, if uh, you know, we're talking about like the 51%, right? You know, so somebody has, you know, 51% control or if there's a, like a, we call collusion, right? Um, so like a good example of this, there are some, uh, some pretty popular change right now, like, a, like EOS and was it Ripple? Uh, I think Stellar as well, like they are not really decentralized in the same way like Bitcoin or Ethereum is, right? Um, there are some, you know, there's a small group um, that run the major nodes there. And in theory, you know, if they wanted to collude and make some changes to the chain, they could, right? Uh, the, the, the checks and balances there with like having a true decentralized network are, are not there. Yeah, I think it's like, I think, couple of weeks right now, as you're looking at this, there was a JP Morgan coin. And basically, I read into it. It's just a private private uh, ledger on their book. So 
I mean, it's kind of just a database, right? But they have a coin to make it sound cool. And they can change the ledger basically because they own the blockchain. So it's kind of confusing, but I think it brings up the point you're saying, right? Like centralization, if someone owns it, well, then it's not, quote, distributed. Just to command yeah, exactly. that they, they just did that like a few months after saying that Bitcoin was a failure. Right. And, and, and <laughs> publicly attacking the whole thing. It's like, uh, I don't know. How, how many times have they said that? Now, I think it's like they're, they're counting it. I think they've said Bitcoin's died like 300 times now in the past like 10 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I should try to meet, meet some of those teams. I know they're based here from what I've heard. So in New York, so we try to like stalk them someday. Be like, oh, what do, you, do you know what you guys are doing? And told them. <laughs> they, know they, they know I what they're doing. I think they know what they're doing. <laughs> I think what's interesting for their case is that maybe they can settle cash stuff faster like ACH transfers or like international wire transfers within the organization itself. Like, yeah, so it's it's a sense. trade-off to get that transaction speed, right? Right. Because you think about the billions they're moving every single day and how many fees are probably paying just to do that when they could just pay a little bit of Ether on the network and settle that too. So I mean, it'd be kind of, I think it's good for the ecosystem that you know eventually you're getting more usability out of it. But whether it's the right way that it's truly decentralized, I think that's up for debate. Um, kind of like, I, I think there's room for both. I mean, uh, you know, depending on the use case, you know, maybe um, for like something like Ripple, for example, right? Um, they just want like that fast, fast transaction speed, and then you know, eventually get that into like mobile apps and stuff, right? I mean, like uh, it's the the buy buy your coffee use case, right? Um, so I mean, like if it's just like a lot of people doing low, like. Uh, I guess like low amount kind of transactions uh, a lot, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis or something. They're focused more on like, what's the user experience like, right? So, you know, I want like a good app that's easy to use and then just like, you know, use it like an Apple Pay type of thing or something, right? Uh, and have that, have that go quickly still. Um, and then, you know, there's other use cases like, you know, for Bitcoin and Ethereum, Ethereum, you know, with the contracts and all that. And then Bitcoin just sort of more as like a value store for like, um, for l larger, larger transactions. Yeah, I think one example I always take, tell people is that if you look at like email, you can set up your own servers, your own PGP, whatever, and SMTP, yeah. but no one does that because it's not convenient. <laughs> it's a hassle, right? Yeah, it's a hassle, right? Like none of us on the company use our own emails. And I mean, like who is it that well, Clinton did that, right? Before the election? Apparently. I, read, I read my own Postfix server for, for a few years, but I think, what is it? Uh, last year I shut it down, so it was too much hassle. I just started using SendGrid. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's move on to the third point uh, that blockchain can solve with any uh, proving ownership. So Carlos, why don't you take this one? Yeah, well, uh, proving ownership, uh, the, 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 the basics of, of blockchain is that you, you can prove being the owner of a private key, you are authorized to move some funds to make a transaction. So you're kind of proving to the network the ownership uh, of an address, in this case, a, a Bitcoin address or an Ethereum address. So as long as you have a private key, you can prove uh, and that you are the owner of, of a key derivative derived from that or that you are the signer, you sign a message, sign some data. So for the identity context, you, you can prove that you're the owner of an identifier, that you're the owner of a document or some certifier within a system can prove that they sign uh, a claim about you, about, about something. Pretty much all the identity, centralized identity idea is built around these features of public cryptography, being able to prove ownership or authorship of, of something on a network. 
Okay, next point, pseudonymous. Uh, how about Ben, let's have you take this one. So we're looking at you know things that are not disclosed on chain but can still be proven you know thanks to sort of cryptography, right? We, we can actually use the the use case that the, that we talk about a lot here doing like claims attestations uh, related to your identity. So if I've got, uh, let's say an identity document that I want notarized, right? So I'm the first party here, I'm the identity owner. Then I'm gonna contact the, the second party, the certifier, right? Uh, say here's my identity documents. Can you notarize this, or you know, can you verify this? Right. I've got my my address. They have their address. Uh, we can both both create uh, signatures to prove ownership of our respective addresses, which are associated to ourselves. And then with this transaction, that would also have a hash that from both of those, right? So then it could be cryptographically proven that you know the two the two addresses created create that hash there still at this time and then it's related to this document one of the things that we're doing some research into is uh something called identity hubs which is a way to manage your uh, your identity data and sync it uh, between multiple locations right and this this takes place off chain but you could use the the hash related to um some data documents have that hash reference the the off chain uh, off chain data there is a proposal going on to build identity hub based system for the for the singapore government uh, that is still ongoing uh, discussion. Things that they have this digital identity system is of course centralized, but it provides the citizens with capability to access the, all their data held by the government if they have a, a pass, like a, a card. So they are providing this verifiable data. It's verifiable because it comes from the from the government's uh, database it's to be able to use uh, on uh, digitally in any case. So this is a pretty useful identity system model, just that is centralized. So what we are proposing is an integration between SelfKey and that database, so that we can provide verifiable credentials as as they are being designed and implemented right now from that data coming from the government. But that's a uh, yeah, still, still ongoing discussion. Uh, yeah, I think what's interesting to look about in Asia is that if you're going to move an entire country onto a blockchain system, you can't expect people to like do it themselves, right? Because who's going to have the time to do that? Whereas like a government can say, "Hey, sorry guys, we're just going to move this new system, do this in within six months. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind, or we're going to harass." Which is kind of interesting because in some ways that's what centralization is good for, right? If you're like going to leapfrog certain systems, you need kind of like an authority to make that push forward. Whereas if kind of you hope it happens organically, most users don't have time to figure this out. They have other things to do, right? But it's kind of interesting how that's working in tandem with a distributed solution. Intrinsically, blockchains are made to bypass authorities or, or right. to make unnecessary authorities. So authorities don't like blockchain. They, it uh, threatens to make them obsolete somehow. We might be pretty far from it maybe uh, still, but it is a possibility. I mean, if you can trust cryptography, you can, you can trust well-designed protocols. It is what we were talking about last time, that the, the, at some point, uh, the separation between money and state were unthink it was unthinkable. It is evident that it's a possibility now. Many other use cases might, might follow, separating things that are conventionally associated, usually associated with, with governments. It's interesting. I don't know where, where is this going, but governments don't have any reason to just cease being a government and, and, and yeah. many aspects of, of society. So I don't know how is that. I think one thing to also remember is that if you look at how the internet started out, 
it's more like a parallel to keep in mind. I was like, oh, this is democratize everything, but everything is owned by like what five companies now or four companies. There's a lot of promise with uh, you know like blockchain and you know distributed ledger in, in the sense that you know it can help democratize things and take power away from these larger larger entities, right? But ultimately, you know, the same sort of thing that's happened with the internet. You know, the governments and larger corporations they'll come in and they will take the technology, they'll leverage that to their own use cases. And yeah, there was a good article I forgot by which VC, but he was saying how you have like phases of open source where it starts out really like kind of duct tape and like garage style and then you have a closed source that kind of like big companies and a resource to throw at it but then eventually over time open source wins because you look at like how i guess like encarta was a very central source of information but then you know it closed like a couple years ago because wikipedia was just destroying it because there is so much more information to that too right so encyclopedia uh, britannica the encyclopedia britannica oh, yeah, the so same good. thing yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, interesting things. I think I never thought about that until I read that article. Really, oh, you have open source stuff that starts out really kind of janky, but then over time, once it gets better, you just can't stop. And where does that curve balance out with, um, say, like uh, money transactions and accounting and stuff like that that we're all talking about here? So, no answer, but something interesting to think about on the back of your head as we kind of go through. Point number five, next one: uh, decentralization. So, no central authority. Uh, individual controls your keys. Uh, kind of similar to what we talked about proving ownership. But Carlos, you want to go into this one a little bit? Decentralization is is an aspect of blockchains, but it has its downsides and and its advantages. So, brings power to to the edges to to the to the people, but it also like it is a responsibility. It's more it's it's freedom. People have to now manage. They're responsible for their data, for their private keys, and so on. With regard to identity, it's kind of the same thing. You, there's no central authority. I mean, there's more freedom for identity owners. So what happens if you lose your keys? What happens? No one can help you, basically. Of course, there are mechanisms to to go around that. But basically, that's that's one of the challenges that need, need to be solved in an identity system. It's like you get your own freedom, but you have to be responsible for that freedom if you lose yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Correct. That's like an individual thing too, whether you're comfortable with that. But I think as the system develops, um, we'll see how this goes too. Uh, so the next point we talked about is tokenization and reputation. So uh, reputation system, if you think about like when you buy something on eBay or even on Amazon, you're looking at seller reviews, five star, two star, one star before you actually transact with them, right? So how does this relate to like blockchains? The thought that I had on this one here was um, Carlos said about the non-fungible tokens, right? So where something is unique, proving that my university degree is my university degree, it's not your own. It's not something that you can really transfer, right? So it's like a non, non-transferable sort of token, right? That's, you know, referencing some kind of, a, uh, well, in this case, like a, like an identity document or, or what have you. Uh, and then the same thing going to like reputation systems. So you're using tokens to grade sort of uh, someone's reputation, right? Let's say like if we create a create this new platform or whatever, it's like an e-commerce platform, like a marketplace with buyer seller, right? Um, and then we could have like a reputation token. If you do well on the system and you, you know, you're providing a good service and you know, you're not getting any complaints or whatever, and then you, know, you get more and more of these like reputation tokens uh, and then you know, vice versa, right? You know, doing less, less than honorable things on the network, then you could start losing, losing your tokens and losing your, your reputation. Okay, cool. So let's move on to the next session. So this one's a little bit interesting, uh, potential downsides of blockchain systems. So I think in the media or articles we tend to be reading, a lot of it's like, you know, blockchain can do this, you could decentralize that, but none of the actual potential downsides are talked about a lot. And I think when we work on this day to day, we can kind of see things like, oh, wow, this is like still, you know, not scalable. And it, I can't believe this works like this. I think, Carlos, you have a line. It's like, what, welcome to Ethereum development. Now, this is like 2019 when we're talking about this. Does that still apply or? <laughs> Still thing, yeah, yeah. The thing is that uh, blockchains are not made to be efficient; they're made to be secure. The fact that, uh, at least on the basic model of blockchains, 
each node on the network has to replicate the whole data and the data doesn't uh, just grows and grows and that needs a consensus protocol going on that that has a lots of implications versus the scalability issue that's been uh, it is a fact of, of blockchain so how do we deal with this system that is growing in size imagine a file that's uh, i don't know what's the size of ethereum it is um i don't like know 100 gigabytes or something. yeah something like that so it's getting, big. it's getting, getting big. bigger and bigger and bigger and then you need more network bandwidth to to synchronize the networks and better hardware to to be able to function uh, as a node, each operation that you perform on the blockchain has a has a cost. It requires uh, to pay gas. So that's that's one way to prevent spammers and to incentivize the the, the miners. There's an inefficiency uh, inherent to to the blockchain. So that's that's one problem that is obviously a downside of of, of having an identity system based based on blockchain. Right. And once the ledgers say like 100 gigs, you can't delete the first 20. Because it's all immutable, right? And yeah, it's all tied. It's not fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting because as you, you get to 100 gigs, 200 gigs, and well, then by the time moving that around it gets slower. Is sharding supposed to solve this issue? And yeah, sharding is one of them still. Um, and then, you know, we talk about like on um, Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, right? Um, uh, another thing that actually helps with this, um, which I don't, I don't think anyone's really talked about, but like um, when you have uh, improving network speeds too, right? Um, so let's say like if you're, you're running a node and like, uh, you know, you're the only sort of like, uh, internet connection that's available is like, you know, like 10 up, 10 down or something. Right. So it's, it's going to take a while for you to actually like sync up that data just because of like the actual like network connection. Right. So as like network connection speeds improve, uh, I mean like, uh, you know, we're looking at 5g that's coming through, but, uh, you know, we'd be looking at like new, like, you know, fiber, broadband and stuff, right? Um, and that, that'll help with that as well, too. There's not only the, the, the gas cost and the scalability in terms of uh, growth, but uh, the consensus protocols make, makes it, I mean, each node of the network has to execute a smart contract pretty much. So that adds uh, an additional cost of, of time for transactions. You want to do something on, on, on a decentralized application and you have to wait. I mean, users don't want to wait in any system that, but now you're talking about waiting time that you could be 15 seconds, could be a couple of hours. Blockchains are falling short of, of providing a user experience that close to real time. So that's sharding that makes it possible that not all the nodes in the network have to execute everything. And that's that's one way to make it um, a little bit more efficient. Yeah, I think one example I tell people about this transaction cost is like imagine if you're on like Instagram or Facebook and you're sending a friend a message like you're at an event you're lost and you're trying hey where are you and like you need to pay a transaction fee to like send a message he needs to pay one to send it back to you <laughs> like to send an image or a video to your mom you have to pay like a fee like imagine all the stuff you do on Instagram and like you have to pay a fee to do all that stuff now there's there's also the the concept of state channels it kind of solve that problem too don't want everything that happens uh, during an interaction, during a process to be stored on chain, to require a transaction on chain. If we were playing, I don't know, let's say a chess game uh, online, we could do that in a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, manner through a state channel. So at any point could be settled on the blockchain, but it doesn't have to, do, uh, doesn't have to be done at each turn. So we can play the game. The end result, we someone submits it uh, on the blockchain. Kind of saves some costing of time and 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 money to perform the 
the whole the whole thing, the whole process. So you're saying that if I play a chess game with you, instead of broadcasting every move we make to the network, we can just broadcast the result that I lost or you won, and then yeah, and then that in that like final transaction, you'd have like all the you could have all the moves, right? Like uh, like A one to B two or whatever. Yeah, it has everything. It's it's like uh, dealing with a sort of parallel chaining of the transactions. They are are any point they are verifiable. It's meant so you can you cannot game it. It's not doesn't fall out of the rules of the blockchain, but doesn't require each each turn each action to, to have a transaction on chain. So something like this requires some sort of like peer to peer communication then. Yeah. In order for you and your friend to be able to actually perform these these actions, right? You know, what what's exactly happening like from like one step to the other. So we use the, use the game example. So let's say like you start that, that chess game, right? And then like you make the 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 first move like and then how how is that recorded? It is a smart contract that is able to verify all all transactions. So it is still transactions, as far as I know, going on. Okay. Uh, everyone signs their transactions and so on. So it's a back and forth of, of, of operations. They are signed. They have to be verifiable. And at any point, anyone can, uh, let's say, up- upload the chain to, to the actual uh, blockchain. But yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't have the details right now on, on how that... Be actually- that you would define away what checkmate is in chess, and then you would reverse it and you know, what was the move before this? What was the move before that? And then you can like, am I thinking the right way or? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think the whole chain of events ha- has to be, I mean, it, it, it is according to each case, what, what are the rules? But the, the point is that the rules have to be verifiable on chain so that no party can, can try to override them. The party depends on, 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 on what the application is and what the rules are we talking about. There's this uh, work going on on general state channels. I owe you some more research on that, but it's pretty much supposed to solve the general problem of, of state channels. Uh, each application that needs uh, that feature has implemented their own contract, their own uh, rules, but these should be able to solve like general uh, state channels for for any kind of application. Cool. So let's move on to the next potential downside. Uh, one is there are no admins. So, you know, in the current centralized system, you have kind of like support teams or admins that can deal with bad actors that abuse certain things. But a blockchain, you don't really have this, right? So Ben, do you want to go over this a little bit? So if we talk about an arbitration system, this would be something, it's a, it's a mechanism that would uh, allow somebody on the network to basically challenge another actor on the network. This actor did something wrong or in, you know in this case they didn't provide this service so uh, i want my money back or something right or i want a refund so if the if they don't provide that refund then it could go to an arbitration system and this could bring in other actors on the network to review that case just al- almost kind of the same way that it would like if you take someone to court like if you sue them right and then uh, you know the judge is going to look at, at that so you have other other participants on the network who would be acting sort of like a as a almost like a jury right as a, as arbiters uh, and then they could make a decision on that. That could all be facilitated, you know, through smart, through smart contracts, through the ledger. And then at which point, you know, that would affect the reputation based on whatever the result of that arbitration decision was, that that'll, that'll affect the reputation system. And, you know, depending on how that mechanism is uh, implemented, you know, in theory, you could actually boot someone off of the network and, and, and bar them from it, right? And then they'd lose sort of all of their reputation that they had previously built up or, or what have you. I think until we see a... Kind of real world scenario too. It's kind of just theory crafting. As we're talking, it's a lot of theory. Yeah. (laughs) So let's move on to the next point: mistakes and accidents. Uh, This happens a lot in this space, where either you send stuff the wrong address, you can't reverse stuff. Uh, So, Carlos, you want to you want to talk about this one? The fact the feature of being immutable plus the feature of being decentralized has these drawbacks. 
where you cannot fix something that's wrong. That, that that's that's pretty common habit in the software world where you oh something's wrong, so you can fix it now. There's this famous case of uh, the DAO that they uploaded a buggy code. Yeah, pretty much they had to recur to the centralized aspect of some level of centrality and on Ethereum to 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 fix that. So in a true system, in a, in a system where it's truly decentralized, that that would be the end of it. Applies to mistakes made by develop developers or just bad design, mistakes made by the users. It's it's pretty common. Uh, that users send tokens to the the token contract address that has happens to us um, commonly. It doesn't happen to us; ha- happens to to them. <laughs> but uh, you, you you send uh, tokens to a contract. It's if the contract is not made to receive those, you pretty much lose them. You have to be careful with uh, using something as a blockchain where things cannot be fixed unless you previously implemented the mechanisms to to fix things. So that's that's kind of a challenge uh, for developing blockchain-based uh, systems. And this goes with key recovery too, right? Um, I understand. There's oh yeah, ways to do that. Yeah, there's a problem of, of losing losing your private key. So one pretty common way to prevent that is to back up your keys uh, uh, with a list of words. That that's pretty common in, in many uh, crypto wallets. There's also the uh, the concept of social recovery, practically delegating key recovery to uh, multiple. Uh, friends of yours or, or people you you trust so in case you lose your keys uh they can uh restore it somehow like uh shamir's secret sharing you can share a cryptographic key among different parties uh, so no one has your key but the whole group in this case is able to reconstruct it if they come together with their shards and they can help you recover a key so that's why you should trust uh, those people yeah it's not like an email pass where you could just reset it or SMS reset it and then get access back because it was more complicated. Yeah, yeah, much more complicated. Yeah, you, there's no authority you can you can say, hey, I, I forgot my key. So uh, yeah, and I think we've all known one or two people that send something to the wrong address and just be like, oh, I can't get it back now. And yeah, you can do. About it's pretty that. common. Yeah. One thing that we kind of move on to next that we don't really talk about or no one. It's kind of very theoretical, but like hard forks. So say you have an ID system on one blockchain and then hard for it kind of like how bitcoin cash versus bitcoin B- btc like you know what happens with that too like i mean this is kind of theory crafting but what do you guys think there's a chance that either there's an intentional hard fork done on the network like it was done on in that in that case in ethereum fix the the DAO problem but there's also breakups that can happen when people want to go another way the the Bitcoin classic, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum classic cases. Bring some some problems in case of identity because after a hard fork, you would be uh, in two places, in two different networks. So it's not much of an issue as long as the, the parties that are interacting with your identity system interacting with the right chain. It adds the possibility to, to, to more mistakes if someone transfers something to you or, or interacts with your identity that is not on the right chain but still the same identifier, for example, still the same address. So that that brings could bring a little bit more confusion to, to the whole thing. And it's also immutable too, right? So if you have a hard fork, your old yeah. chain and your old data is there forever. And so if someone- That's why it's that, hard, yeah. <laughs> once something is immutable and it's there forever, even if you don't want it there, it has to stay there. 
we don't have an answer for that, but that's just like a reality we're going to have to deal with at some point eventually. So, And that's why it's really, really important to consider about what data you're actually putting on chain, right? right. Even though we're, you know, we're talking a lot about like identity management and identity verification, but at no point do we actually want to put any user's uh, personal data on chain. People make the argument like, oh, it's encrypted or whatever, right? Well, in- encryption is only good until it's not. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, or until someone finds out that in Evernote you have your private keys linked to your college email and then you suddenly lose four million dollars on a live stream. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best example. <laughs> Even if the data is still encrypted, there's a problem of correlation. I mean, an identity system, and decentralized identity systems, they have to be designed to be to keep anonymity and privacy uh, for users. So the very fact that someone can know that I've been communicating with this party and this other party, and it, it, it is all done by myself, they could like reconstruct some, infer some data about it, some information uh, about me. So even if they are not getting my actual uh, documents or identifiable information, they are still knowing something about me. So that's, that's another challenge that decentralized identity systems have, have to solve. Non-correlativity of information unless it's desired. Everything goes uh, public on, on, on chain. So that's that's one thing to consider. Yeah, it's like a last point, the double-edged sword of being anonymous, right? Like you get better privacy, but you can also gain the system. Like what if you're accidentally money laundering for a terrorist? And then also what if you're like accidentally too transparent? Like if I'm Ben sending me stuff and then I snoop on his address and realize that, oh, he's had like a thousand Bitcoin in you know, I can look. I can dig through his blockchain address and just kind of find out who owns what, who's been talking to, who's been sending money to, and then you know it's privacy, quote private. But I know that Ben owns this address. Then then it's public, right? Yeah. So you know, kind of potential downside. Just to review real quick. Uh, you know, inefficiencies. What if we do with admins that can deal with bad actors, uh, mistakes and accidents? What happens in a hard fork? Uh, Big question here, no one has an answer to. And then the double-edged sword that we've been kind of talking about. Use cases for blockchain, I think we've talked about ownership. Um, through your private key, you can prove cryptographically that you actually own this address or any assets on that. Uh, we're also talking about how you can reduce counterparty risk. So say if I am a supplier and Ben wants to order a thousand mugs for me, uh, I can show he can show me his address that he owns it like I said before, but also that he has the money on there so I can do business with him instead of him, you know, me sending him product and then never getting paid or just getting a down payment and kind of have to negotiate that. There's a lot of back and forth in that trust issue that I probably don't realize on a day-to-day basis, but it's built into our system that it's so ingrained um, that we can actually have a system to build it out. That's a good good use case for escrow systems as well too, right? right. Which uh, um, uh, cryptocurrency is actually, you know, quite quite good at that still. It's not not a difficult um, mechanism to implement. Yeah, you could do a contract escrow that could release based on certain conditions. If these are hit, it goes to a certain party. And it's, it's kind of like arbitration in some ways too in a very more advanced level too, right? But yeah, um, yeah. it's certainly buildable uh, in the current state too. Uh, so the next thing we also talk about is verifiable claims. I think Carlos touched about this a little bit. So, you know, with KYC, AML processes, you know, are you a resident of the United States or China or the UK? And can you put that claim on your address that's verified? And then you just share that instead of throwing your passport around um, to all these lawyers and accountants and advisors and banks and all this stuff too. And I think Ben, you talked about how Facebook has this kind of semi-verifiable claim, right? You know, I've worked with the the Facebook Connect, uh, like the login with Facebook API. And uh, yeah, one of the things that you can do is um, just get an age verification over 18. Rather than them sending like the date of birth or their actual age, it'll just be sort of a yes or no, right? And then you can use that, um, you know, to see if they should be allowed to enter your site or whatever. Can you think about like, even if you know someone's name and the date of birth, the amount of stuff you can reverse engineer from that? 
Like you just type into Google oh, yeah. and then you can start finding different profiles like history. <laughs> yeah, it's super scary. And I, th- I think one use case we've seen also in the news is uh, humanitarian efforts. So I saw this article where uh, the UN had a refugee camp for people from Syria that fled the country, basically just got up in the middle of the night and left because they were going to be killed. And so um, if you don't have a passport, what do you actually have to identify yourself? So what they came up with was a private blockchain that would use their biometrics to log um, certain credits on the assets. So when they go to the market to buy stuff, they could just use the biometrics and then the blockchain address would see if they have the right credits to like pay for stuff too. Which is kind of interesting because it's kind of like one of the first in use scenarios that really makes a lot of sense that solves like a huge issue. Cause you know, if your name is, you know, say like Terry and you don't have a passport or any idea, how do you actually prove who you are that and how they tie that to biometrics and the blockchain is something that, it's interesting, but it's also something we've kind of talked about internally too, like on the R&D team. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities um, to use, uh, use biometrics and distributed ledger together. Um, there's, you know, obviously uh, a bit of a ways to go in terms of like, you know, standardizing and really getting like the ideal system uh, in place, but absolutely huge potential. To yeah, work. and it also goes back to the previous point, like accidental transparency, like once I know your biometrics are on this address, well then I definitely know you on this address uh, and all that <laughs> stuff too. So, so this is all stuff we're still trying to figure out, but no one has an answer to. So, And I think the last one, we've talked about this internally, accredited investor checks, and especially as security tokens are becoming more popular these days. So uh, the difference between security tokens and utility tokens is uh, you have to maintain, among many other things, the big thing is you need to maintain a whitelist of who can actually hold your tokens, uh, whether they're accredited investors or not. So before you can say even send it to on an address, how do you check your recipient is actually uh, a credit investor too? And so, uh, I think we're kind of looking into solutions to do that, uh, either on chain uh, through or through verifiable claims. But how, when do you guys tackle this? One of the ideas there is to uh, use uh, DIDs uh, and then associate attestations or claims along with that, and then reference that back to the ownership requirements of the STO. And the idea is to use DID because it's interoperable. Once you're accredited, you can use it on different chains, right? Yeah, well, that's that's another thing too. I mean, like we've got was it ERC fourteen hundred that's on Ethereum for the STO proposal, and then EOS just released one called like was it Financial Services Protocol or something. So I mean, like you're gonna see more and more of these uh, come out, and then gonna be some challenges there to manage interoperability between multiple chains, uh, but uh, it should be possible. I mean, like um, one of the goals of W three C credentials group. So there are all these groups of people, um, different companies and different parties working on establishing standards. Decentralized identity is the whole idea of DIDs. It's being considered by many, many uh, different parties. And the idea is that they have to be interoperable. Otherwise, we end up with silos of different identity systems. So the idea is that regardless of the chains, the, 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 the back end of these uh, systems, there's a set of protocols that identity-related actors can use can follow to to understand each other. Verifiable credentials take uh, makes use of cryptography uh, to prove the authorship of some some claim, some credential uh, about something about someone. It's a very general solution to many problems identity related. So that STO and security tokens widely could, could be implemented using verifiable credentials that any anyone in regardless of blockchain or, or any system could verify uh, because what's verifiable is the cryptography. It's not 
tied to any specific platform, any specific company. Or... That makes sense on the interoperability because who's going to want to say they're a US resident and do it on like five different chains? It just makes no sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, that's kind of wrapping up that section of that. So in the closing, we always go over some news. I think this week we saw Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg had an article about blockchain authentication. So on a high level, he says it's interesting that you can actually have a system where users can choose what they want to disclose, whether it's for third-party access, uh, no one can, as a developer, no one can actually shut you out of system. But uh, we talked about this internally. Right? Facebook is not going to give this up because they control the user data. And if users choose not to give them data, well, then their business model kind of crumbles, right? Here, here's the other thing, though. It was something like Facebook login. It's actually the third parties that are getting the data. Facebook already has your data. And they're sharing it with that, that third party, right? The bottleneck is that for every sort of authentication attempt that the, it involves a third party, right? Rather than just like a direct website A or mobile app B or whatever, right? And then Facebook and then me. So it's three parties that are interacting in that authentication process, right? And it would be eliminating Facebook from that still. Um, so the trick there is because Facebook has the data that you're trying to share with that uh, that third party there. So where does that data get stored, right? So like with something like login with Facebook, I can actually share quite a bit, right? Um, you know, depending on what the settings are there, you can be sharing my email address, date of birth, gender, hobbies and interests, friends list, you know, photos, like pretty much anything that's on your Facebook account, right? Uh, so where does, if you actually want to share that data during that authentication process, right? You know, if you, whether that's a, you know, a new user sign up or, you know, they're, you're taking advantage of some feature on an app or something, right? Where does that data get stored, right? So th I think that's, that's the challenge for them still because they are really looking to allow that data to be shared, right? Now, if you put all that private data on, on chain, then we go back to that problem that we talked yeah. about before, you know, pri private data on a public ledger, right? Private <laughs> so, messages with graphic nudes. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, but I think either way, it's a good thing because, you know, having a big company talking about blockchain and systems is kind of a good signal for us that, you know, eventually this will become kind of part of the internet. And as, people get more mature that realizing that, hey, we don't want this data floating around too, so. There's any, ever a case where, you know, the technology is gonna provide a benefit, you know, entities are gonna leverage that. Okay, cool, well, that's it for this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, make sure to check us out, download our desktop application, the SelfCAD Any Wallet at selfcad.org slash download. And then we'll see you guys next week where we're gonna talk about some more about digital identity topics. And yeah, stay tuned, thanks for joining, and we'll see you. Thanks guys. See you guys. See ya. Have a good one.